You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, featuring exclusive audio from Catalyst, the official singles conference of the Los Angeles International Church of Christ Singles Ministry. All right. Let's pray. Oh, God, please search my heart. Um, as a speaker, it's so tempting to feel like the pressure of people relies on me, God. And like the lesson I had to prepare tonight has taught me I am not in control. God, I know your spirit has sought all of our hearts for years, God. You have longed for us. And uh, I know your work is already being done. So I pray that the message tonight is encouraging. I pray that it's inspiring. Uh, God, please... Uh, cancel, search my heart for any wrong motives, God, that wants to, to teach something new. Uh, Lord, I am humbled that I get a chance just to remind people of your word. Um, as much as I want to be a, something grand, God, I, I am so low before you. And so I pray, God, tonight uh, that we are moved collectively. Uh, we love you so much. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. So in about four weeks, we'll mark six years since my uh, trip to Costa Rica. And uh, it was a school trip through my university. It was 14 students and two advisors. And it was the best trip ever. Uh, We were going there to do kind of missionary work, but it wasn't really religiously affiliated. So the first four days we spent in a host house with some uh, host mom who cooked for us. She was incredible. Um, And for four days straight, we would visit an orphanage and play countless hours of soccer. I don't play soccer, but it was, it was fun. Um, we had a lot of piggyback rides, little hand slap games. The girls always loved the little patty cake things. Um, it was awesome. After that, we would spend three days on an excursion. And if you've ever been to Costa Rica, it's a beautiful country. So we drove through the country. We saw cows wandering the streets. We saw crocodiles in the rivers. We got a chance to hike to a waterfall. We got to zip line through the rainforest. We got to get up to a volcano and then take a night in the hot springs. It was a perfect trip. <laughs> On the eighth day, we arrive in Matapalo, which is a rural beach community in Costa Rica. And I mean rural. We woke up early the next morning to begin packing sandbags. The night before, with our orientation, they had warned us to be careful with the heat, the mosquitoes, and the rip currents. We were maybe 50 yards from the beach. I'm from Miami. I live in San Diego. This beach was majestic. So the next morning we get up, we pack sandbags for the turtles. (laughs) So I'll be honest here, the trip was perfect, but I'm not like an animal enthusiast. Um, It was nice serving the orphans, but I was like, where are these turtles at? Like, where are they? When are they coming up to shore? Because they weren't scheduled to even beach and lay eggs for like a while. So I digress. I just had to mention that. Um, so during our lunch break, uh, we, go up, we, we go back up to the hut under the house, and um, four of the students opted to not eat lunch because we were told that if you choose to eat, you can't swim for two hours because the food will weigh you down. The rip currents are strong. So the four students went out, and an hour later they come back. We're playing dominoes and spades like Hispanics do, and... They're in a panic saying, have you seen Ali? Like, no, we haven't seen him. So after searching the bathroom and the room, we run back out to the shore because we realized he never came back out of the water. Uh, The story went 
that they were all caught in a rip current. The two guys had swam out. The two girls got stuck. One of the guys went back to save them and said, you have to keep pushing. Ali, they thought, was making it to shore to get help. So when they got out, they were surprised to not see him. So we're all looking for him. Mind you, we're in a rural part of Costa Rica, so the Coast Guard takes forever. Their, their version of a Coast Guard takes forever to get there. Um, night sets. Our search ends. We end up leaving the next morning. His dad comes in separate to get helicopters and boats involved. I get a call home three days later that his body washed up on shore. And to this day, we still don't know what happened. And it was an absolute tragedy. But something happened that day that I'll never forget. I partnered with one of the girls during the search who was in the water with him. And she was frantic. I had spoken to her early on the trip, so I knew she wasn't a woman of faith. But what I saw that intrigued me was in that search for him, I saw her scream out to what seemed to be the world to stop and acknowledge that her friend was missing. So there were some surfers that came out. They had already gone out to look and came back. There was a family not too far down the beach, and she's screaming, why aren't you guys helping? Everyone should stop and do something about it. But there was nothing left to be done. And so I saw her hope kind of squeeze into herself. Well, there's something I have to do. I can't stop. If we leave, we leave him behind. I have to do something. As the waves would crash and recede, and the sun would set, so would her false sense of control. In her last cries, her lack of control would compromise her faith as she begins crying out to God. She went from apathetic or maybe even agnostic to spiritual, just like that. I couldn't help but think Ecclesiastes 3. He sets eternity in the hearts of men. Romans 1, his invisible qualities... Proclaim who he is. Every part of us knows him. The things around us declare his existence, but uncertainty brings us face to face. That's true for all of us. Control or lack of it will compromise our faith. We try so hard to hold on to things that we really don't have any control of. Because in our nature we long for security and In our infinite wisdom, it seems best to search for it within ourselves. And then when we slip, we don't turn to God because we've already done that. We're disciples. So we turn away from God. We blame God because he's supposed to be in control of the things that we're trying to control. It doesn't make sense, but it's what we do. I've heard it said like this. It's like a man who goes to work and has a fight with his best friend. Goes home and says, honey, I want a divorce. It makes no sense. What does his wife have to do with it? Let me ask this. How many of you drove here with people in your car? Just raise your hands. Okay. Now, with that same hand, I want you to point out all the backseat drivers in your car. (laughs) Some of you guys are like, yeah, I told you. It's just like the backseat drivers, and I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm absolutely a backseat driver. But we sit there, and we don't lift a finger to get from point A to point B, and we have an opinion on how the drivers should drive. 
But here's the catch is we, we're okay to be driven because when something goes wrong, we have space to blame. We relinquish all responsibility just in case something goes wrong. Control in the wrong hands is dangerous. It will compromise our faith. So for those of you that don't know, my name is Lindsay Dominguez. I live here in San Diego. I, from Miami, went to school in Tampa where I got converted, moved out here almost three years ago. And God has managed to fit what I feel is ten years of lessons and experiences in three years. The first year and a half was probably the hardest. So I want to run you through just my firsts in San Diego, okay? So coming here was my first move, one, to another state, but then across the country as an adult. It was my first time in ministry, first time working two jobs plus ministry, so three jobs. First time asked to step out of the ministry. First time living not just with one family, but four families in a matter of 18 months. First time feeling loneliness. First car, and with that, first real debt. First time having for real bills. First, ben- first best friendship in the kingdom. First heartbreak as that friendship ended. First life crisis as I wondered what my life meant and what was I doing here. First time initiating counseling. First depression. First real ministry transition. First career job. First time not leading. First girlfriend in the kingdom. First time leading a woman spiritually. First layoff from, her, from career job. First breakup in the kingdom, first conference poem, and now my first conference message. And through all of it, of course, you only see it at the end, right? God has been teaching me this lesson of control. I want to visit that first best friendship in the kingdom part. Because I think this is where God taught me most about the cost of control. Make a long story short, my first year I was without a car, working two jobs plus ministry, so I was riding a bike (laughs) in the rain. That was tough. And it was hard keeping any semblance of a real life because one of my jobs was being a server. So when the singles were out having a good time, I was working. When they had Bible talk, I had teen Bible talk. So essentially I had no life. In desperation and longing for a friend and some sort of security, as my life seemed to have none, I latched out to the brother who was closest in proximity and who I could have a good time with. Over the course of several months, I ended up moving into a brother's room. He lived with his family. Um, and he was the brother I latched onto. And in that kind of year almost, I would come to expect from him what a normal human being would be given through several relationships. I needed him to be a confidant, a discipler, a comforter, deep, insightful, concerned, available, perceptive, and a laundry list more things that no human could actually do. Needless to say, that friendship imploded as I pushed him further and further away. I had hurt my brother deeply, and I was hurting deeply. Through a lot of tears, prayers, thoughts, and counseling, I learned the cost of my control. The things I needed were real. I needed a friend. I needed a discipler. I needed to feel needed. I needed purpose. Where it went wrong is I tried doing it my way, and it became about me. I think that second piece was probably the biggest. I learned that love is not self-seeking. It all went wrong when I started to think about my security. Trying to control will cost. So to catch you up to date with the season of my life now, 
just three and a half months ago, I was laid off from my first career job because the project I worked on got terminated. A week after that, I took to wrestling with God, really, for the first time, because I had been praying to be broken over some stuff that he wasn't responding to. A month after that, my girlfriend at the time and I decided to decided it best to save our friendship, and so we broke off the dating relationship. She's here. We're still friends, and she's awesome. And shortly after that, I went back to Miami for three weeks in hopes to mediate some drama with my family. They're not disciples. Just trying to get them to heaven. But I want to focus on the time I wrestled with God, because this was different for me. For about three or four days straight, it was the week of my spiritual birthday, February 13th. It was a Friday, Friday the 13th. And I had told God, I expect to hear your voice before midnight on February 13th. And I want you to know, this is not like a typical thing for me. Like, if you're thinking like, wow, so, so brave, like, that's definitely not my character. Um, I am so fearful of God. So for me to say, like, I'm upset with you and I expect to hear you, it was, a, it was a point of desperation. I didn't know what else to do but be honest. And so for, for three or four days, I would spend, I mean, hours every morning and every night on the beach in La Jolla in utter silence. I wanted to pray, but I couldn't. I, I didn't hear him. I didn't feel him. I couldn't see him, and I was mad at him. I had nothing to say to him. And so it was Friday, saying, okay, God, you're probably not going to answer. <laughs> you're going to humble me, which I, okay, I guess I'll get that. And uh, it was 9 o'clock. I was finishing up some business, and I was just about to go to the mountain for a last-ditch effort to hear God's voice. And uh, a sister texted me for my spiritual birthday, Philippians 3, 12 through 16. If you guys can turn there. Three twelve six through 16. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. It says, I have not yet reached my goal, and I am not perfect. But Christ has taken hold of me, so I keep on running and struggling to take hold of the prize. My friends, I don't feel like I've already arrived. But I forget what is behind, and I struggle for what is ahead. I run toward the goal so I can win the prize of being called to heaven. This is the prize God offers because of what Christ Jesus has done. All of us who are mature should think in the same way. And if any of you think different, God will make it clear to you. But you must keep going in the direction that we are now headed. If that wasn't God's voice, I don't know what is. My favorite quality about God is his faithfulness. I mean, I've had plenty of people break promises. So for God, it's like, okay, if I doubt his promises, I might as well doubt his existence. If he is God, then he is true to what he does. So this struggle was new because I've never known him to not be faithful to his word. And he was, again, if you think different, just keep going. Man, how much longer? It's taken a while. I remember I got that text and I almost broke down. Because God heard me? He responded to my demand as if I'm someone to demand something of God. 
the scripture, who am I that you are mindful of me, just rings so loud. Since then, through Bible study and relationships, God has just been showing me myself. And it wasn't some miraculous moment that I think we all look for, right? That like moment where it's like, well, you know, it seems like that because it's a lesson and you have to condense it. And it seems like one moment after the other. But you have to know that there's time in between. There's still uncertainty that exists. Like, okay, God, I know that scripture last week was really encouraging, but I haven't heard from you in a week after that. Where did you go? And he just exposes time after time all of who I really am. That scripture, Proverbs 20, verse 3, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, was never so true. He exposes how the deeper selfish and prideful motives, how deep and selfish they are. But more importantly, he puts people in my life who I'm supposed to teach, who I'm supposed to have an authority position over. I'm supposed to be helping, and he uses them to bring me very, very low. I think about Isaiah Hall. I wish he was here. You guys would love him. You would know exactly who he is if you saw him too. He's a master encourager. He'll come to my house. He just walks behind me the whole time. And he's like 22. He's not like a little kid. He's 22. He walks by me. He's like just wants to talk about God the entire time. And it's kind of weird if you first meet him. But I've learned to love and appreciate it because he has something I can never imitate. I think about the guys who I disciple, Jesus and Dwayne. Jesus is a year and some months, and he's just a little fireball. I'm just like, man, I feel like I used to be that. But I look up to him, and I'm supposed to be his discipler. Because he has this purity of heart, this fire for God. I think about Dwayne, and San Diego knows Dwayne. He has this child heart that cannot be learned. You won't find it in a Bible study. You can't practice this. Some of it you don't want to practice. But man, I felt like all these people were challenging me just with their lives, and I had such a hard time submitting to that. God exposed me, big time. And then he starts exposing all the small decisions. Like when I wake up, I have a choice, right? To eat because I'm hungry or to have my quiet time. And what do I do? I eat. I go in the car, 20-minute drive. I can either pray for the things that are on my heart or the text I just got about prayer requests, or I can listen to music. I love music. What do I do? I opt for music. And so over and over again, God exposes this selfish heart within me. I'm frustrated because time and time again, I'm exposed for who I really am. For how much I desire control. A choice to choose what I want. I want comfort. I want to listen to music. I want to sleep more. But then I wonder why there's no movement in the things I've prayed. Control prohibits power. Psalm 10.4 reads, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Duh. It seems so clear now, but this hit me like a ton of bricks a few weeks ago. How can there be room for God in my thoughts if my thoughts are consumed with me? And what I want. So all these years I've been praying to have my name written in Hebrews 11. Because at level 10 of my heart, I want to be great for God. I don't want my life to just be amiss. Maybe amiss with some odor. I want it to mean something. 
I've read Proverbs 2, the guy who cries aloud. I, I read Psalm 119, and I, I read these things over. I study our ancestors like Paul and Peter, and I look at them, and I say, man, I can see their face. I can see what a righteous man of God looks like. I can see my face standing next to them, and yet I draw no closer to that man because of me. Although my shepherd has proven time and time again to answer prayers, when I have a chance to pray or do what I want, I still do what I want. Control prohibits power. And then we come to the conclusion. What does this have to do with Psalm 23? I'm sure you guys are wondering, like, where's the where's the theme scripture at? If you guys can turn to Psalm 23, you'll understand after this. And if someone in the front can actually read it, I forgot my phone and my Bible. Marsha, would you mind reading that? Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Awesome, thanks. I got all the notes for it, just not the scripture. So what's the point? Control carries certainty. See, everything before has been control in your hands. Control is really our best friend when it's in God's hands. And to be quite honest, the definition of control, we, we really just don't have control. He is control. And not the forceful kind that says you must or you will, I will make you, but control in the sense that we give it the power to direct and to instruct. I mean, look at the scripture. So this is later on in David's years, right? They say this was probably written when he was about 50 years old. So he had been through the majority of his life. The only thing he hadn't been through yet was probably the darkest valley, which was Absalom coming over and trying to overtake him, and his son ended up dying. But beside that, he had been through, I mean, the thick. And in all his wisdom, in all his experience, this is his conclusion. The Lord is my shepherd. He could have ended the entire thing there because David knew very well, his audience knew well the role of a shepherd and his tragically dependent sheep. But he elaborates, I think, for our sake. Well, how is he our shepherd? Why should we lack nothing? Because of he. Look at it. He leads beside quiet waters. He lays us down in green pastures. He anoints our head. It's his rod and staff that comfort us. He prepares the table. The only and final part we get a chance to actually play is dwelling in his house. Are you kidding? Oh, my gosh. I remember I used to want to drive so much when I was a kid. Then I got a car, and everyone starts asking for rides. I will be chauffeured any day of the week. I might tell you to go a little faster, but I, I will gladly sit in the back. It's so much easier giving him control. 
It doesn't even make sense that I get a chance to chill in the back. Just go where you go. And when we get there, I get to enjoy it. The most humbling part of this passage for me is actually the theme scripture. The restore part. That word is actually, or the refresh part, that word is actually restore. Or bring back to. So why is that an important distinction? Because when God does choose to provide us with rest, when he chooses to restore us, it's only to get right back to work. For he guides me alone on the right path for his name's sake. If you haven't gotten it yet, it's all about him. Even in our restful periods that we sometimes become entitled to and we expect, It's only to get you back on the field. It's still about him. We get real comfortable in that green grass. But laying a patch of green grass long enough, it'll turn brown right underneath you. So what am I saying? I'm saying David understood that life happens to all of us. There are situations that are in our control, and there are situations out of our control. Some of you guys hear my experience of what the first three years in San Diego has been like. You're like, yeah, right. I went through all that plus 10 last year. I say, okay. But it's still the same lesson. Life will happen. But with God in control, he will take us when he's ready through every single step. And so I want to challenge you the way I've been challenged by God to give up control. Some of you guys came here with control. I'm going to go on a certain date, control a certain part of my destiny. (laughs) Some of you came here out of routine. Some of you came here like, my first conference, awesome, can't wait. (laughs) Wherever you're at. And this is where I have found my greatest refuge. This is where I find my rest, is on my knees before God, not trying to control things. Those have been my best days. Even preparing this message was hard. I would, okay, so I, you know, I like, I, I don't mind preaching. Like, I like to preach. I don't get a chance to do it very often. So I have so much pent up, like, I'm ready to preach. And I get this, this chapter, and I'm like, okay, how do I make what I want to say into this passage? <laughs> and it took a while to realize that's not what the passage was saying. I was like, I'm going to talk to the brothers tonight, and it's going to be great. I wanted so bad to control. I wanted to preach something new, something the world's never heard before. I want this to be the the crux of the conference at the beginning. (laughs) And I read C.S. Lewis, and he goes, it is more vital for us to remind than it is for us to instruct. Because it's all been said and done before. So I'm humbled, because I can't teach you guys anything new. You guys have heard this before. But I pray it still helps. So don't be fooled. Control will compromise your faith if it's in your hands. Control comes at a high cost in your hands. Control will prohibit God's power in your hands. All this is true in the wrong hands. In the great shepherd's hands, control carries certainty. I want to share a poem with you guys called I Give Myself Away. And I'll end with this. I think it's relative to the message. 
The idea of giving myself away intrigues me. Because to give something away, it's implied it must be owned, whether bought, received, or stolen. So which is it for you? I'm persuaded it might be all three. I know it was for me at least. It all started in Acts 17 when I first learned that God created us that we might, might walk in the light. And as amazing as it sounds to be found, the thing that intrigued me the most was for the first time I understood the decision was mine. Created by the divine, he gave me the gift of being free. And not like the gift a parent gives who says, act up and that belongs back to me. No, I mean really free. But in no time I had taken control and became an enemy of God in my mind. Having lost sight of my creator, I looked around at the crater my sin dug and noticed for the first time I had successfully been snatched away from my first love. Kidnapped. Abducted. I should have been traumatized, but I loved it. Every sensual desire fulfilled. I became numb to how to feel when I sinned against God. So in my mind, no guilt, no wrong. So I quickly became a Christian in song. Never reading my Bible, but I knew all the current gospel music. Never really praying, but play the right song and I would lose it. I put the worst in worship. It's the only time I did it. A slave to sin, depraved by lust. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. This is some of us. We sit here singing the words to these songs because looking spiritual is a must. While others of us have long offered up empty words to our Lord because we think we've already given up enough. I've already preached enough sermons. I've led enough songs. I've baptized enough people. It's time for the young ones to move it along. I've been denying myself for way too long. At some point, this has got to be wrong. I gave up everything. I did. I've already given up enough for my kids. I've already given up enough for my wife. Don't you think it fair to say I've already given up enough of my life? And little do you realize it was at that point that you were bought at a price. Paid for by the blood of Christ, he gave all of himself away for you. And blinded by your cloudy view, you dare ask God, why don't you just take me back? And he responds now with tears trapped. Because I've been trying to win you back. I've been trying to win you back unforced love. He's been trying to impress you for years and you've ceased to be amazed, lost in amaze, dazed by sin and deceit. It's time we get on our knees and bow down at his feet as we learn to give ourselves away to the king. It's time that we bow down at his feet and get on our knees and learn to give ourselves away to the king. Thank you. You've just listened to audio from the Catalyst Conference. For more information about Catalyst, please visit CatalystRetreat.com.